0: Welcome to our podcast series, Getting to the Core Issues. Hello, I'm Joanne Bellotta. And I'm Marianne Harmston. Each segment, we will interview healthcare innovators whose models will help transform the healthcare delivery system and provide solutions to the healthcare puzzle. This segment is focused on the impact and cost of social and intimate relationship violence and will introduce you to an innovative project designed to improve health system response to violence. Mary and I are pleased to welcome Jack Patrici, founder of Growing A New Heart, who is one of the leading experts in the field. A lot of what you're doing is bringing that community together, the healthcare community, along with the you know, social services and others. How is it changing the way the health systems and communities respond to uh, social and uh, intimate partner relationship violence and bringing the community together to make change in the way we are able to service these people?
1: we have a project working with Bay State Health Systems, which is in western Massachusetts. And we've taken our lead from Joanne Timmons, who works in Boston at Boston Medical Center. And she has been working on a version of this in an urban setting for 10 years. What the project is, is helping our health system recognize and respond to domestic and sexual violence in its own setting. Because People are showing up in emergency rooms with more obvious injury. But if you really look at the social determinants and start broadening your lens from the healthcare point of view, you would start looking at OBGYN, you would start looking at gastrointestinal issues, you would start looking at people who are coming in repeatedly and might not have access to their medication instead of asking, maybe they're drug-seeking. You might be asking yourself, if you're looking at this different lens, is someone interfering with their prescription? So we're helping them think differently so that they screen because there's many ways that you can become a safer person so that someone who comes into your health system at any point could actually tell you that they were experiencing sexual domestic violence. They're not going to tell you, or what we say, positive screen, like say yes. If you've got a checklist and you're saying, okay, are your immunizations up? Yep, check. Anyone hurting you at home? Nope. Okay, check. Unless you become somebody who could actually hear yes, yes, I'm being hurt, and know what to do with it, people aren't going to tell you yes, because it's not worth it and you don't really know what to do
2: with it. Looking forward at the 2020 elections, are there particular campaigns that you would be addressing with people that will be running for office? You know, I'm thinking about Kristen Gillibrand, I'm thinking about Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, or it doesn't have to be Republican or Democratic, but a platform considering the impact, the billions of dollars of impact to, in medical care. We've got organizations all over the country. In Sarasota alone, would you believe, we have the highest concentration of nonprofit organizations, 2400. When you look at and you speak with somebody like yourself, as we have with other guest speakers on our show, at what point does this reach a position of power where it can actually affect people, it's, uh, where it's part of a platform as part of a campaign.
1: We've reached there. I remember in the 90s when Hillary Clinton went to China and she said that violence against women was a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. I was well into the field. I was young and I thought, why is that a thing? Why do you have to say that? Of course it is. I didn't really understand how much thinking, attitudes, beliefs, how entrenched the idea was that this is still separate and private. And now we're back. And then I got the picture. And then there was movement forward with the Violence Against Women Act. And now we're really pulling the veil off of those attitudes and beliefs. What's changed politically For me, I can see the impact right away in my work. This will get back to what we need to do going forward in 2020. Once 2016 hit, in the beginning of all my presentations, I would talk about what is misogyny and what are those attitudes and do they actually exist? And most people would say, no, that's not a real thing. That's old times. People aren't really like that anymore. And i have to give them all the data to say, no, no, these beliefs are alive and well. I stopped having to do that once people started hearing how easy it is to succeed politically in America, even if you show active contempt towards women or women's expression and disclosures of sexual and domestic violence. Why that's so dangerous links back to what I said earlier, that the risk factor for perpetrating violence is being supported for believing violence is okay. It's an attitude that, and a belief that has to be supported. And so once that was supported, we started seeing more perpetration in our communities. And in groups where we deal with perpetrators, they actually would say right out, uh, the president's one of us. They would say it right out. We wouldn't say that. They would say that. They would actually, after the Kavanaugh hearings, we have many people who are sexually violent in our groups say, oh, he's a predator just like us. They would recognize this and then would push back on the facilitators, making it harder. What's at stake? Is which set of values you're going to support those values when it comes to violence lead directly to behaviors that are either more violent or less violent so it has to be overtly part of a platform that we support the violence against women act we believe survivors when they disclose that we're going to put money into prevention it's so ridiculous that we know that prevention works but we don't fund prevention and every guy in group when they really start to change says to us and i mean everyone who starts to change because some people don't change but when they do those who do all say I needed to
2: know this when I was 12. I see it with conversations and my daughter works in the the field with people from an area that haven't had a lot of advantages. And so they're dealing with all of the things that you've outlined. Even knowing what she was going into is staggering at some point because we forget how many people really get no positive reaffirmation and so it sets them off at such a deficit but we need a leader that can bridge the message in a way that can get buy-in i can tell you even from a generational standpoint the women's movement i believe needs some assistance in and that is the ability to construct the message in a way that gets buy-in from both men and women and from multi-generations. Because you're dealing with the Playboy generation. It just was part of the flim-flam words and there were those women that did that or whatever. And I can tell you this because I talk to people all the time about how they feel and in private, I will tell you it's also a generational issue. And the younger women who never had to live in that of the world, they have no idea about that. course they understand it from an intellectual level but they don't understand it from an emotional level so consequently what comes across is well if you empathize with that or you aren't so highly offended then you're an idiot that is part of the bridge we need to build maria shriver has an incredible newspaper article she puts out each sunday i am telling you regardless of what the topic is she finds the words to create a buy-in boy i certainly would like to work with a candidate and be able to script the words in a way that don't, don't have people screaming at one another, but listening to one another. And let's find all the areas we can agree on.
1: For me, doing this work for so long, it seems like the basic thing we could agree on is that everyone should be able to feel safe in their relationship. And every community should support that.
2: It's a basic thing. It's a basic right that is not adhered to, though in many, many different segments of the population. I was uh, trying to look up the name of the um, senatorial candidate my grandson is tracking from Hawaii. And in doing that, I saw that Chris Brown was arrested again for rape every other month. This time it was in Paris. I don't know what they're waiting for with this guy. That's a classic example of I think the type of person that you're talking about who feels entitled to behave in a certain way, regardless of whether it's with Rihanna or whoever in Paris. It's a complicated issue and you've done extraordinary work on it. What are you looking for in the next leader?
1: Community leadership, even in healthcare or the people who run the systems, they do better if they are willing to see things differently. That flexibility of saying, Show me what you see across systems. So, healthcare that didn't used to think this way, we have a local leader who's amazing and one of the few men in power that I've seen do this say, I don't know about this, tell me that confidence and humility. Oh, tell me, and then you can build a bridge. We have an in-depth discussion of what are the social determinants of health? How's that impacted by racism or sexism or all the hot button stuff, but how is it? What's the data show us? And his response was, I used to be kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of guy, and I see it all differently now. I think we could be part of the solution. That is so rare this sense of, show me what I don't see. Because an abusive person, you can tell right away, is if, if they feel uncomfortable in any way, from all the way to irate, to just out of their element, they respond by using whatever tools they have to intimidate or hurt others. But someone who's not abusive doesn't do that. And so leadership at the highest level could just stand in what they know and say, and show me what I'm not seeing. You have all the people who really are committed to their work, they're not the enemy. People who wanna stop sexual violence are not the enemy. People, the Me Too movement's not trying to hurt anybody. They want actually the world to be safer. People Mm -hmm. who are talking about racism are not accusing, they want the world to be safer. So a leader who could actually say, tell me what I'm not seeing, that would change everything.
0: What other resources are needed to kind of pull the model that you're talking about together?
1: The sexual and domestic violence field is so overwhelmed with having to respond to emergencies. Excuse me for people who don't focus on this, so I'm just a little warning. People being stabbed, strangled, non-fatal strangulation, hunted, they're responding to those people and their kids. Carving out some time To do this community work, actually start thinking, oh, if I really get to know the folks in the healthcare system, that'll be better for survivors I serve. That's a shift on our part, too. Showing up to where the other systems work and making those connections, that's something that people doing the responding to survivors need to shift, too. We have to reshift some of our time and some of our priorities so that we can start shifting the systems that haven't shifted. We did that a lot with the criminal justice system. In the nineties there's money that started and a whole focus on how does the criminal justice system define sexual and domestic violence. And the same thing like with corrections and that and community corrections. And now that system is somewhat more responsive. But we could do that with the health care system.
2: In the healthcare system today, there is so much stress on the primary care providers that it's created a, you know, a boondoggle. So they're focused on, that's why we have so many specialties. Joanne and I, I think one of the hopes that we have in doing this podcast series is just shift some of the dynamic on the mental health issue and how the, we can have access to it through either primary care or clinical care within a community Mm -hmm. so that people will finally be able to have access to it and it will be funded in a way that doesn't detract from what physicians are already struggling with. Primary care physicians keep getting a reduction or their expenses are going up, but their reimbursements aren't. Then we want to say, but we should incorporate additional responsibilities in their field in terms of emotional health. So therein is a little bit of a conundrum on how to do that.
1: Yeah, we don't wanna make healthcare providers responsible for solving this problem or for telling survivors what to do. We want to increase the safety of survivors and reduce isolation so that healthcare providers can just be more compassionate and make a warm referral to people they know really well in the community, the community of advocacy, which is funded differently. Mm -hmm. And there's always community benefits money that the hospitals are required to use that could support the advocacy response so that people who do this for a living can take it from there. But there's a big disconnect between even seeing, like that you don't want to have that conversation because you only have 15 minutes and you don't have time to have that conversation. Right. If everybody, if radiology, if intake, if the nurses, if everybody's giving this unafraid, skillful screening question that's compassionate and that tells the person, I really see it from your point of view. You can tell me yes and we have someone here at the hospital that's gonna connect you that's not going to cost them more time. We don't want them to have the long conversation. Those take hours and it's not their skill set. They need to be doing what they do. But right yeah. now we have a big block and we could change that because it's going to save money because those people who are repeatedly coming for many different reasons, the source right. of that is the domestic violence or the sexual violence.
0: Right. I found too that the the key to your model and correct me if I'm wrong is really creating the relationship with the medical community and all these other advocacy agencies that are out there. They had done some contract work for a a methadone facility. Mm -hmm. and The hospital kept getting these people coming into the emergency room. They weren't really equipped to help them with their opioid abuse treatment, they didn't know that there was a substance abuse facility right in their town, and they didn't know there was a transportation service that could help these people, that there was, you know, another agency that could provide them with, uh, you know, food and housing and shelters. Um, so they did bring in a community uh, meeting and of all these advocacy agencies to start to form that relationship. So now they had some, we had to refer this person so that they weren't just tossing them on the street. I think that's a lot of what you're talking about for domestic violence is having the medical community have a relationship with all these other agencies to deal with those, all those other social determinants of health.
1: That's right. And the rural model we're working on now takes for granted that there's no money because really the funds are so slim Mm -hmm. And so we do what rural people do all the time, which is make it work with what you have. And what you have is relationship. We have uh, recovery coaches in the emergency rooms. Those bridges are all based on relationships. So in domestic and sexual violence, it's building that idea that it's their business too, but they don't have to take on the problem. Like, we'll do the work. We've noticed in doing this training and awareness and attitudinal shift and knowledge about what sexual domestic violence is and how it works, the people working in the medical systems are survivors and they are perpetrators of violence. One in four, one in seven, that applies to them too. There was another barrier of I don't want to be talking about this because this applies to me that we have
0: to address. Okay. And how have you overcome that?
1: The real training and education is in-depth and done in a way that makes it possible for people to identify this is going on and also get help for themselves. Like after our first in-depth training, the next day we had a nurse show up at our support group because this is us there's no barrier and every training we do someone discloses
2: do you find that in canada denmark sweden Do you find around the world, I'm not going to go into this, um, the African continent, because the models there are even more severe in terms of what goes on with the female, you know, all the things that we know. But so my question is, we know where it's not working globally, which is just about everywhere. Is there any place that has a model that's creating more prevention?
1: What works? is when women have true access to supports, like healthcare supports, early education, childcare, maternal care, education, business, when they're represented in government. The more women are supported, the more the outcomes are. It is actually about women's agency or ability to move and make decisions and take care of their own well-being, that makes the outcomes better.
2: Empowering the women. Like Iceland. Like Iceland. Okay. So there is a model that currently works there that is superior to other models?
1: If you look at outcomes for women, you're going to find they do better in the countries that have all these supports and our outcomes for women aren't that good in fact i don't know if you read about it it was a few years ago there was a delegation of international women coming to look at all the different domains of well-being for women in this country none of them were americans they were international and they were horrified that we would accept this because the data is in Women do better, their outcomes across the board, including for violence, are better the more supported they are.
2: I would think the state of Israel probably has a model that would be admirable because- Oh, I don't know
1: about Israels, that's good. I should check on that, see how they're doing.
2: They participate both in the military, from an educational standpoint, there's a focus on equality for men and women, young boys and young girls. I have not been to Israel, but I've read about different initiatives. And I have a friend that made a movie about uh, an Israeli and a Palestinian girl who were friends. But when you empower women, when you empower anyone so that they feel strong and they're not frightened, it leads to a better outcome, always leads to a better outcome. If a community wants to
0: institute your model, how do they go about doing it? What kind of data do they need? Where, where would they find that data? And how much is your program costing to launch and to put into place?
1: In addition to the advocacy that already exists in the community where there's no additional costs it's a nominal amount like i think the initial community benefits grant we got is five thousand dollars for an internal nurse in the hospital to become involved with us the costs are really born by the shift of the advocacy system that already exists to focus on responding and working with the hospital. We are actually now having a new a new advocate who's going to be working in the hospital but an employee of ours. So that would be the cost of one full-time position. But the others is a hospital committing to allowing people to attend. They created their own internal domestic violence task force. So making that possible within their shifts to be reimbursable so they can do that. We're not talking about a great cost. In order to look at data and how are we succeeding, hospitals would have to start thinking about tracking domestic violence and sexual violence, which mostly they don't do, like within a hospital. We're just starting to track referrals that we're getting. We didn't track those either. So we're all having to reorganize ourselves and think differently. People can contact me at Growing A New Heart to consult on figuring out what's best for your community. And I could also put you in contact with my colleagues who've been doing this in an urban setting 10 years longer than I have. And I'd be happy to help people think through what the strengths are, where the relationships can be built. So one thing I want to emphasize is that the overlap between intimate partner violence, domestic violence, it includes sexual violence and, and how that shows up in the healthcare is that People might not have access to or be able to take their birth control. People might have abortions that they don't want to have or be prevented from ending, terminating a pregnancy. People who are in abusive relationships don't have full control over their reproductive health. And a lot of people don't think about that as part of domestic violence. And of course, there's huge costs associated with reproductive health care. That's one of the just eye-opening facts that I want people to think about when they're thinking about the healthcare's response to domestic violence
2: what you have discussed with us is phenomenal. And I think the subject is so over-encompassing that we probably could spend days talking about it. And maybe at one point, we can come back to you. We thank you so much, Jack. For more information about Jack and her work,
0: please visit our website at exigentkey.com. Don't forget to share this podcast with your family,
2: friends, and colleagues. Thank you.